thank you all for coming. It's great having you here. And uh, this is our first citywide leaders meeting. Isn't it exciting? Want to welcome those of you from TUT. Just wave at us. Yay. Want to welcome those of you from Pretoria East. And those of you from High Felt. <laughs> All right, great. Praise God. Well, I want to share with you about what I've entitled leadership. Leadership. Who's the leader here? All right. <laughs> A leader is anyone who influences. Leadership is about influence. Leadership is not about position. And the principles I share with you this evening are principles you can apply to the home. You can apply to your workplace. We've got business leaders here. We've got leaders in schools, leaders in various places. And I'm trusting that you'll be encouraged and something will be ignited in you with regards to leadership. So please don't let the enemy rob you um, of this message. Amen. So how do we define leadership? I like a definition by Kevin Cruz where he says, leadership is a process of social influence that maximizes the efforts of others toward the achievement of a goal. Leadership is a process of social influence that maximizes the efforts of others towards the achievement of a goal. And you know what I find so interesting, guys, is it's been found that 25% of job success can be predicted by IQ. So by how smart you are. Only 25% of your job success can be predicted by IQ. 75% of job success is predicted by factors such as, and I'm going to mention three, social support, so in other words, your circle that you've got, social support, optimism is the second one, optimism, and then whether you view stress as a challenge or a threat. Isn't that interesting? Now they don't teach you optimism at varsity. You guys at TUT, when was the last time you went on a course on optimism? But there's what's called learned optimism. You can learn optimism, right? Social support, your ability to connect with people. That's powerful stuff. And then whether you view stress as a threat or a challenge. So a lot of times in ministry, a lot of times in business, we experience a stressful environment, but do we see it as a challenge or do we see it as a threat? All right? So when I look at those types of things, I've said to myself, this is the mushy-gushy stuff. This is in EQ territory. This is resilience territory right? This is personal mastery territory. And I see all of it pointing to the principles I'm going to share with you. There are nine leaderships I want to share with you. Sunday we'll preach. We'll open the Bible verses, everything, okay? Tonight I'm sharing with you biblical principles, right? But they're also very practical. And these are nine shifts, nine shifts that take people from good to great in leadership. You see, there are a lot of people who are good at praying, so prayer isn't one of them, by the way, right? There are a lot of people who are good at praying, but they're not great leaders. There are a lot of people who are very much in the word, reading their Bibles, but they're not necessarily great leaders. So what activity, what, what action does, and attitude does a leader take that takes them from a place where they're good to a place where they're great? How many of you want to be great leaders? Okay, so let's go on this journey in terms of leadership greatness. The first thing I've observed 
And my first key point is being authentic. Just being authentic. What do we mean by being authentic? Well, I still remember as a teenager in Zim going to a flea market and purchasing, I come from the days of, you know when everyone liked to have Nike Airs? You know those, those ones, those basketball type shoes that get you know, past your ankle area? And I saw these nice black ones. And I got a hold of them, took them home. And what was interesting was when I arrived at home, one of them said, when I arrived home, one of them said Nike Air, but the other one I looked on its tongue and it said Nkai Air. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> It was a bootleg. It was a fake. How many of you have experienced that? But you know that there are a lot of leaders, there are a lot of leaders who are fakes. And you know there was extensive leadership research that was carried out from way back over a number of years. And guess what they found? They found that the number one thing that people were looking for in whoever is going to lead them, the number one people, thing people were looking for was, and the words that were used were honesty, integrity authenticity. Those are the words that were being used. Sincere. Because before you cast your vision, before you share with everyone how you're going to change the world, people want to know, can I trust you? People want to know, are you for real? What do I mean by this? All I'm saying this evening is be real. Stop pretending. If we want to be the kind of church that influences nations, we must be real. People are drawn to that. I did a full day session um, earlier on today at, uh, with, with people from Danone. And it was interesting because I said to one of the directors there, I said, you know what your strength is with this team that you're leading? You're authentic. You're authentic. You're real. So my question to you is, have you stopped pretending? if you're pretending about anything. Be clear about what you stand for. People are looking for that. They want to know what you stand for. Pastor Michael was sharing with me earlier on today some of the things he's going to be sharing on Sunday. I get to have a sneak preview, see? You know? And I think what's so powerful about it is he's, he's being clear about what the church stands for. Does that make sense? If it's misty in the mind of a leader, it will be foggy in the mind of the people listening to you. So my question to you is, in whatever sphere of leadership you are in, whether it's kids, whether it's small groups, whatever the environment is, are people clear about what you stand for? That's part of being authentic. What I've noticed in this church is a lot of leaders, they won't say it to their people. But they'll come to me and they'll be like, yeah, because the guys are like this, and then they're like this, and then these people are like, and then possible, then what do I do? Because people are oh, they really like this. But then when they're now dealing with the people, they're like, yeah, no, it's fine, it's cool, guys, you're all good. <laughs> and there's something about church, have you noticed? As, it's almost like we're firm with people at work, but when it comes to church, it's kind of like, hey, but they're volunteers, and ah. Oh. But you know what, when people pick up on that, it then means you're not being authentic because what you're portraying isn't what's really happening in your heart. Make sense? Okay, so be clear about what you stand for. You know, when we're talking about authenticity, it's linked to things like integrity. Now, integrity is major. Integrity comes from an interesting word, integer, doesn't it? We've got a lot of maths people. Sean, have you just done a, what's the maths exam you're doing today? Cool, how was it? 
<laughs> this is Sean Roberts, guys. Of course, it was good. <laughs> All right. But the thing is, what's an integer? An integer is a whole number, isn't it? And that's where that word integrity comes from. It's about the whole person. Now, you can compartmentalize honesty. What do I mean by that? Someone can say, I was dishonest with my wife, but I'm honest with my clients. Someone can say that. You can put honesty into different compartments, but you can't do that with integrity. So someone leading an organization, a CEO, cannot stand up and say, we're a company of integrity. I'm a leader who's very integrous. Right? And then he um, says, because we don't lie to our customers, but he's busy cheating on his wife. It can't. Integrity is about the whole person. Who am I when no one is watching? Amen? I think that was the, one of the statements I mentioned on TV. Hey, It's nice to be able to reflect on that. Yeah, that's what I said. I said it. I said it. Okay. All right. Who am I when no one is watching? Right? Think about that. It's linked to, when we talk about authenticity, it's linked to the word sincerity. Sincerity. How sincere are you? You can see when people are being sincere, right? Sincerity comes from an interesting word, and I would have taught on this before. It comes from two words, sin and sere. Sin sere, right? Which literally means without wax. Without wax. So what's going on here is, remember in ancient times, people would go and they would want to purchase those marble stones. Want to purchase a marble stone. And they want to know, has it got a crack in it? And some of the dubious guys who would sell fake things, what would they do? They would cover it with wax. And sincere literally means without wax. So if you wanted to know, was the crack covered with wax or not, you would basically heat up this marble stone. And what does wax do when it's heated up? We all know it begins to melt. And then you know, this one is with wax. So there are a lot of leaders who are with wax. Because they're fine when things are fine. But then when the heat is turned on, what happens? You then see the wax that was covering all the cracks. So my question to you is, are you going to God with your cracks? Because if you're not, what the enemy does is he waits until you're influencing lots of people and it becomes a time bomb, doesn't it? It's a time bomb that's tick, 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 tick. And one day it explodes and then you're embarrassed, and it affects and influences lots of people. So God is taking us to a place where we really work with ourselves in terms of the core of who we are. We're talking about being authentic people. Amen. And that's what makes you influential. Um, honesty is also a part of being authentic, and transparency. Transparency. One organization I was dealing with, they were in a situation where something came up um, just with regards to one of the employees. And you know, often in companies, people keep quiet about things, everything is hush hush, and then there's still that sense of like, oh, so what happened? Oh, you know, was it for real or not? And what is interesting is the leaders in this organization literally just said, this is what happened, blow by blow. And so for the people who are now affected by all of this, for them it's like we got the facts. The leaders were open with us. So my question to you is, how transparent are you with the people on your team? Whatever team you're a part of, because whether you're in hospitality, ushering, we're all building teams at whatever level. How transparent are you? Just about, guys, this is how I'm feeling. This is the space I'm, I'm in. Right? So... There are key questions I'd like to ask you with regards to authenticity. And you'll get all these slides and so on. But if I go on a rabbit trail, you can just take notes on that. Okay. 
Who am I when no one is watching? That's a question every leader has to ask themselves. Who am I when no one is watching? What am I not telling my people and why? What am I not telling my people and why? You know, some leaders are like, I know I can't tell them about any of my weaknesses because it will discourage them. Listen, I'm not saying go and tell everyone everything. I'm not saying that. But you know, some people use that as an excuse. I know, Paul, if people get too close to you, they'll, they'll become familiar with you. What I find interesting is John, the disciple of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he could lay his head on Jesus' chest. He could do that, couldn't he? And yet he recognized that this is my Lord. He's the same John where later on we see him, island of Patmos, what, is, what happens? Falls down like a dead person because he recognizes his Lord. And God is taking us to that place where we can be intimate with the people following us, close to them. They get to know us for real. But at the same time, they still respect us. And that's the balance that we want to have. You know, none of you can say, oh, Paul, as I've gotten to know you better, I've lost respect for you. You get what I'm saying? I feel like for some of you, we've gotten, as, we've, as we get to know each other better, I feel more respected by you. Amen? So let's move away from that type of leadership that says we want to be distant from the people and we'll maintain our distance so that they respect us. Okay? Am I willing to talk about the elephant in the room? You know, a study has been done on leaders who are what we call high trust leaders, high trust leaders. And what's interesting about these leaders is that they're able to talk about the elephant in the room. People trust you more when you can talk about the elephant in the room. You all know that concept, don't you? Right? Talking about the thing where everyone knows about it, but no one wants to talk about it. Great leaders speak out what everyone else is whispering. Great leaders speak out what everyone else is whispering. And people see your courage and they're like, oh, it's so refreshing that he just addresses the issue. You ever have it when you walk in a room and everyone is thinking of a particular thing, but who's the leader? The leader is the person who can say, okay, guys, I know that this is where you're at and this is what's been going on. Let's talk about it. Do you know that the person who's the most clear in a room ends up being the go-to person? The person who's the most clear in a room ends up being the go-to person, even if they're clearly wrong. And you know what the sad thing is? If you look in the newspapers today, if you look on the internet, there are a lot of people who've got really bad worldviews, negative worldviews. By the way, I've got a book that's come out, just come out. You'll see it. We've just, I think it's now on Amazon. It's um, Building Your Nation building your nation and I'm very excited about it because I got a prophetic word that one of the leaders of this country is going to actually um, get a hold of it and want to then speak to me as a result of that but it literally is speaking to the current issues that we're going through right now in the, na in the nation okay but there are a lot of people who are out there on the internet saying a lot of things that are from bad worldviews unbiblical worldviews but people are listening to them. Why? They're clear. They're clear about what they believe and why. But a lot of times you speak to a Christian. So what's your stance on this? 
uh, actual, actual, uh, yeah, my pastor, did he preach on that? Yeah, he once preached and then, yeah, but some of the guys in our church, they also do this and then, uh, hey, I'm not too sure. Hey, this is a tricky one, hey. We're not clear. We're not sending out a clear message. What, I, what excites me is this vision is very clear. And if we keep building along these lines, how can we go wrong? Go is a movement of God-honoring believers, progressively discipling nations, communicating and demonstrating the kingdom of God. If someone asks you, do you believe in miracles? You can't say, ah, yeah, maybe, or oh, sometimes demonstrating the kingdom of God. What are you guys about? Transforming the thinking of generations. So wherever we go, we're challenging how people think. And part of our authenticity is when people see we're for real. That's what we stand for. Making disciples, building families, releasing leaders, transforming society, establishing churches. Number two. So number one was be authentic. Be authentic. Number two, visioneering. Visioneering. Be clear about where you're going. Whatever department you're in, be clear about where you're going. Welcome, Brother Lysias. He's just flown in. He's just flown in, looking all smart there. And look at the smile. His, his wife is beaming. That's a good sign. <laughs> if she was sighing like, oh, is he? <laughs> then we'll be concerned. <laughs> All right. Be clear about where you are going. Be clear about where you're going. Do you know that this is the second thing that came up in some leadership research that was carried out? The first thing was people were looking for a leader who's honest. But you know what the second highest was? The second highest score was we want someone who's got a long range view of things. A long range view of things. I was dealing with a leader of a business unit in the pharmaceutical industry a couple of days ago, and she's she's so pumped, so excited, and she said, "You know what? The people dealing with generics—that's her division. You know, they will just go places. It's like literally from here on out, Paul. We can't go wrong. It's just the only way is up." And as she was speaking, I was like, "Yo, at your next sales cycle meeting, you must exhort the people." Because, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte once said, leaders are dealers in hope. So the people who, you are, who are following you, you must be giving a sense of hope. How do you do that? Have a long-range view of things. People want to know. You all want to know in this church, where are we going? In the next couple of years, where is Go going to be? I can tell you right now, there'll be many more churches. I can tell you right now, when we meet like this, this place would be filled or wherever would be at that time with leaders from many different places. Why? Because our vision is to establish churches. That's one of the things I can tell you. I can tell you another thing that will be influencing on the continent a lot because we've got a vision to reform Africa and nations. I can tell you that we'll probably have a publishing house where a whole lot of books will be churned out and won't just be Paul Nyamuda books. It'll be the Michael Manunis, the Wimbai Charigas, and, and, and. Amen? Just slot your name in there. Right? So those are some of the places we're going. But here's the interesting thing about vision. Having a long-range view, it's been found to be one of the things leaders find most difficult. You know why? Because often we're just busy putting out fires. Think about it in the workplace, guys. Often we're just busy putting out fires. So with so many organizations, you find that the people who are supposed to be custodians of the vision and the strategy, they're running around trying to manage people, dealing with all sorts of people issues. The people who are supposed to be dealing with the people issues are on the ground dealing with the technical operational issues. 
Not so? And then the technical people on the ground are like, why did you guys hire me if you're doing it anyway? So we're finding in this nation and, and throughout the world, a lot of people are operating one tier down. So then you like say, show us the way to go. Where should we go? What's the vision? But this person is so tired running around trying to do everything. We see it in our churches, don't we? As far well as we're running around, I mean, I'm often, anyway, let me, I don't want to start complaining, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I know what I'm like, because once I go down that path, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I had to get that out of my system, <laughs> okay? So we'll just press pause on that one, <laughs> okay? So here's the thing. Your people are asking the following questions. Can you answer them? Shall I share with you some of the questions they're asking? Some of you are asking me this, and then you've got people asking you this. Where are you taking us? Where are you taking us? Why are we doing this? So as people are going to children's church, doing the thing, at a certain point, I can tell you right now, they'll be asking, why are we doing this? Is it working? And your job is to give them hope. Your job is to give them hope. What will this department look like next year? They're wondering, where are we going? What will, what will this department look like next year? Whatever department you're leading. They're also asking, what's the win? Remember, as leaders, we need to clarify the win. If you aren't clear about what the win is for your area, strong personalities will create their own wins. Have you ever had that experience, whether it's in a church or a department or in your organization, where you think they're doing mediocre, they're operating at a mediocre level, but they're so proud of themselves and they're like, ah, we're doing well, man. We're acing it. We're acing it. Sis <laughs> is laughing. It's like, yeah, I've been there, done that. <laughs> at his workplace, I know what he's thinking, right? And that's because the win wasn't clarified often. Or it was clarified, but they, in their own mind, they've got their own win. The win must always be clarified. What's a win? Win is, if we do this particular thing and we do it well, this is the key thing we must focus on in order to be successful. The guys in your small groups should know what the win is. In our families at home, our children should know what the win is, what our family is about. Amen? Remember all these leadership principles, they apply also at home, don't they? I was teaching my kids recently about restitution. Because kids can pick it up if you just say sorry to them. Or someone says sorry, but they don't really mean it. I was teaching about restitution. And now they're going around saying like, oh, daddy, daddy, so-and-so. Talking about their brother. So-and-so, he didn't do restitution. He didn't do restitution. <laughs> anyway. All right. Now, when it comes to vision... People are looking for a sense of meaning. There was a study done by McKinsey some years ago. They called it centered leadership. And it was basically on women who were successful but remained healthy. Because you can be successful and unhealthy, right? We know many people are there. Then they also did the study on men and got similar results. And it was interesting because they found five common denominators amongst these women. Guess what one of them was? We're talking about women and men who were successful but remained healthy, like we all want to be. Five common denominators. Guess what one of them was? A sense of meaning. These people found their work to be meaningful. Now, your job, my job as a leader, is to help to create a sense of meaning for people. Does that make sense? To make their work meaningful. 
How do you do that? And I promise you this is so powerful, it motivates people. How do you create a sense of meaning? Do you remember the old story where the one guy was walking and he sees a bricklayer laying bricks and he says to the guy, hey, dude, what are you doing? And the guy says, I'm laying bricks. Then he says to a guy next to him doing exactly the same thing, hey, dude, what are you doing? I'm building a wall. Then he says to a third guy who's exactly next to him there, right there, doing exactly the same thing. What are you doing? I'm building a cathedral. Same activity, different sense of meaning. So I want to encourage you as you lead your teams, whether it's worship, whether it's a small group, whether it's multimedia, whatever you're involved in, remind the people who are working with you the meaningful nature of what they're doing, even if it seems so menial. Because that's the thing about church, isn't it? Often you can just think like, ah, oh, but all I'm doing is just placing water here for the pastor or whoever's preaching. Ah, oh, all I'm doing is I'm just clicking the, the overhead. Thanks, Harvey. I'm just clicking the overhead. But when you show someone the big picture, it's extremely powerful. And what I've noticed in church settings is, you know the scripture that says, he who is slack is brother to him who destroys. You guys know the scripture. He who is slack is brother to him who destroys. When people are slack in church settings, what happens? Literally, it destroys a ministry. I don't want to give too many examples. I don't want to expose people or anything. Okay? That's not what we're trying to do today. Okay? I'm trying not to think of anyone in any situation. We've all done it before. We've all done it before where we are slack. But he who is slack is brother to him who destroys. So when you are creating vision, when you're casting vision at a church level, at a departmental level, part of doing that is creating a sense of meaning for people. People are looking for meaning. People are looking for direction. Leaders are dealers in hope. Amen. Amen. Now my question to you is, how do we make vision stick? How does it stick? Because as pastors, often what we do is we think, if I just preach the vision then it solves the problem. You know, we, we're good at preaching at problems. You know, often we sit down and we say, ah, there's this problem in the church. Let's create a series. Especially if you're quite teaching orientated, you know. <laughs> I remember when we would have these discussions as an SLT and we'd sit down, oh, there are these gaps, guys. Yeah, so next year, mm, let's do a series on this, on this, on this. Now, it's important to do series. But the mistake we make is we think that's all, it's fine. But we've taught the people. But we've told them the vision many times. Why aren't they sticking to it? Right? So how do we make vision stick? Right? You create culture. You've heard of the concept that culture eats strategy. Right? You create culture. You create culture. I was dealing with a particular team today and I got them to look at a wheel which had a whole lot of emotions in it. And one Zulu guy said, hey, culturally this is difficult for me. Do you know that even talking about my emotions, hey. But then he did such a great job when he had to unpack his emotional state. You know, some of my questions like, and what triggers this emotion? And what lies have you believed that have led to this emotion? And he had to unpack it. All right. So that was interesting. So how do you create culture then? How do you create culture? Number one, you create culture by what you teach. So if you want a culture of teamwork, you have to teach about teamwork. You have to say, this is a group. This is a team. Right? What's the difference between a work group gathering and a team? Work group gathering, people are individually accountable. So their mindset is, well, I've done my bit. 
But with a team, people are mutually accountable. So you teach people those kinds of things. Someone can't say like, ah, it's not fair, guys, I scored my goal. But you, goalkeeper, and you guys, you messed up. No, the whole, the team has lost. My wife yesterday, I think it was, was firm with the kids and was like, guys, clean out my car. Guys, clean out. Because you know sometimes your kids can use your vehicle as their dustbin, you know? They'll be eating things and so on and just leave them like in the seats and everything. Clean it up. And one of them comes through to the kitchen and says, I've done my bit. I've done my bit. <laughs> but her goal was, I want you guys to clean up. So I taught them the principle. I said, guys, you're functioning as a team, not a work group gathering. You are mutually <laughs> accountable. So you'll be in trouble if one of your brothers has left a mess in the car. Right? You create culture by what you teach. You create culture by what you model. I know you guys have seen me doing this many times before, but just look at me. Touch your cheek. And still so many of you are touching your chin. <laughs> Why do you touch your chin? Yeah. So people will do what you do, not what you say. I see some people still confused. This is a cheek, this is a chin, guys. <laughs> okay. So you create culture by what you teach, you create culture by what you model. We're talking about how to make vision stick. You have to model it. You create culture by what you measure. If we're not measuring it, we won't get it. If we want church growth, we have to be counting people. Simple as that. We can't just say, oh, we're just trusting God for growth, but we don't count people. And it's okay, there's nothing wrong with counting people. You know, in the book of Acts, it's like, oh, 3,000 were added. That day, okay, they were deaf, they were counting. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, right? You create culture by what you measure. Are we measuring the right things? Because if we want a culture of discipleship, but we're only counting church attendance, we won't have a culture of discipleship. So we need to be measuring and saying, in my small group, how many people have been through rebuild? That's a way of measuring discipleship. Make sense? Okay. You create culture by what you celebrate. What are we celebrating? Are we celebrating these things? Are we just celebrating establishing churches or are we also celebrating building families? Are we celebrating the number of weddings that we're doing? We're doing more and more weddings over the last couple of years. Right? We started having more and more weddings in the church. Do we celebrate that? Right? Make sense? You create culture by what you inspect. You don't get what you expect. You don't just get what you expect. Many people think, I'm expecting this, and so just think it up and it will happen. No, you create culture by what you inspect. Think about it. If you say to your help at home, if you've got a help at home, if you say, I would like you to dust the furniture every day, just because you preached that message to them, does it mean it will happen? For the most part, it won't happen every single day exactly how you want it. But if you come day one, and then you rub the particular piece of furniture and you're like, ooh, there's dust here. Day two, ooh, look, there's dust here. I can tell you what, by day four, you don't have to keep inspecting because you've started to create a culture. After a while, you start doing spot checks. And what I've observed in the ministry is often what happens is we see gaps, cracks, and leakages, but we don't give the people feedback. And they think no one is checking, 
so it's not that important. Cool. You create culture also by what you reward. What are we rewarding? And you know the way we reward very often in ministry is what we say publicly about people, isn't it? We reward that. Are we rewarding the right things? Just think about it, okay? Culture is also created by how leaders react to a crisis. People are watching you as a leader and they're seeing, oh, this is who this person runs to when they're in trouble. See, they're watching you not just in the good times, they're also watching you in the bad times. That's how you create culture. So the first point was be authentic. The second point was visioneering. A vision is a picture of a preferred future. And our job as leaders is to make the vision vivid. To keep painting it, keep painting it, making sure that it's vivid. And the more vivid it is, the easier it is for, for it to stick. Amen. Number three, understanding people. You move from good to great in leadership when you understand your people. Someone once said, leaders understand the norms of their followers. I want you to just for a while think about your sphere of influence. If it's not in the church, if you haven't got an official role in the church in terms of leadership, maybe you're being groomed, right? Um, think about it even in the workplace. Are you thinking about it? You thinking about it? Okay. Just close your eyes. And in fact, you don't have to close your eyes, actually. Because I know some of you will want to write this down. What are their strengths? The people. If you really understand them, you have to be able to answer that question. What are their strengths? Because if you don't know the strengths of your people, guess what happens? You don't use those strengths. One of the qualities of great teams is that you utilize the strengths of the people in your team. They become relational assets. Does that make sense? They're your assets, but they're relational assets. Okay? So, for example, the things that I've done with Machta, for example, right? In terms of some of the card games we've come up with and that kind of thing. The things I've done with Machta. It wasn't really an official position in the church or anything like that, but I saw a skill. I saw someone who's a good executor, someone who's organized, someone who's good with people, but also good administratively, right? And I don't remember exactly how it happened, but somewhere along the line it happened and it's worked out. Does that make sense? And now with the card games I've come up with, those of you coming to the couple's breakfast, don't forget to sign up, those of you who haven't signed up, but you'll see a new set of cards called the marriage button pushes. So it's different to the emotional triggers, the marriage button pushes. <laughs> and these ones, anyway. But the point I'm just making is, the point I'm just making is, it's about being able to spot talent and to ignite something in someone where they want to do it and they feel energized doing it, and it's meaningful for them. They're not doing it grudgingly. Amen? Could there be people around you where they're in the shadows, they're lurking in the shadows, and they've got strengths that you can't see? All right? So what are their strengths? What are the overextensions of their strengths? If you want to know what your weaknesses are, a good thing to do is to look at the overextension or the overuse of a strength. 
You all know what we're talking about there, right? How many of you here in this room are very focused and goal-orientated? Who's a very focused and goal-orientated person? <laughs> Pastor Vimpe, I was waiting for Vim to put her hand up. <laughs> I was like, uh, am I, keep your hand up. All right, keep your hand up if you've been told recently that, hey, sometimes you get obsessed with things. <laughs> right? Or, or, hey, it's not just about your project. Our things are also important. Hey, you just walked past me in the corridor. You didn't, you, on the corridor. You didn't even greet me because you're so focused. So what's happening? A strength that you have is you're goal-orientated. But when you overuse it, overextend it, what ends up happening? You become fixated and obsessed, right? <clears throat> so do you know that about your people, what their overextension is? Because if you don't know about it, you one day when they're fixated and obsessed with something, you'll just be like, hey, stop that obsession. Instead of realizing it's actually a strength, but they're overusing it, okay? What are their deepest fears? What are their deepest fears? So as Cece's pastor, Michael might be asking himself, so what are Cece's deepest fears? Yeah? Do you know the deepest fears of the people that you're leading? People in your small group. It's one of the most powerful questions to ask someone, to just say, what are you afraid of? Better English. Of what are you afraid? <laughs> what motivates them? What motivates them? Do you know that someone will follow me for different reasons to someone else? Because they've got different drivers. And it's important as a leader to know, oh, this person is motivated by this. They want to actually do something significant and be part of a cause. This other one just wants to fill the gaps and cracks. That's what makes, that's meaningful to the, for them. So when you're influencing people, it's important to know what are their drivers. Everyone following that. What are their drivers? What are their gaps? Otherwise, you raise up people and they've got gaps. And then one day those gaps embarrass you and embarrass the church. What are their gaps? You remember what's, what we call the halo effect? You know the halo effect when you're interviewing someone? You, there's just one aspect about the person. Maybe they've got a nice accent or they dress nicely or they're good looking. And you're just like, ah, yeah, this person is so cute. And then one day you say, okay, let me release you to do this. And you thought the person was clued up. <laughs> and then, um, then you're embarrassed. Okay? You, it's important, guys, that we know each other's gaps. And you know what? We all have gaps. We all have gaps. I've got gaps in me. And if you looked at our original SLT, you know, those of you familiar with Insights, I'm high sunshine yellow. My blue is very low. But all the other guys, Pastor Vim, my wife, Pastor Fadzi, Pastor Michael, all of them have got blue either as their top color or their second color. You get what I'm saying? When it comes to hiring people, those of you in business, hire according to your weakness. Our natural tendency is we surround ourselves with people who? Who are like us because that's our comfortable space. We're not being challenged. You have not been called to socialize along the lines of least resistance. Yeah? 
What's the line of least resistance? Ah, it's easy. We just click and we just flow. Sometimes the people who are best for you are the people who are not the same as you. Amen. And the Lord loves the diversity that we experience in the church. So what are their gaps? And are you discipling them around those gaps? What makes them cry? What makes them cry? What makes Michael cry? He told me the other day. It was a positive type of crying. <laughs> Do you remember Michael? He says, yeah, these things actually makes me feel teary. You know, it puts a tear to the eye. I was like, okay, Michael also has a tear. Okay. <laughs> it was a tear of joy, what he was telling me about. Okay. Now everyone's going to ask him, what is it? What is it? What is it? What energizes them? What energizes them? What energizes Vim? I can phone Pastor Vim with an update, and I know the type of updates she likes that energize her. And I know the ones where she might just be like, oh, hey, moving right along. Do you know what energizes your people? All right? What are their emotional triggers? In other words, what pushes their button? What, push, what pushes their buttons? Is it racism? Is it discrimination that pushes their button? Is it chauvinism? There's one lady, she said, that's my emotional trigger. It was a particular workshop I was doing. She says, Paul, I can walk past a boardroom and if I just see it's just men all there, only men, it triggers me, Paul. <laughs> it was a lady from um, the legal department of a particular organization. I won't mention the name of the organization. <laughs> she was like, it triggers her. Okay. What are their wins? In other words, what, success, what does success look like for them? Do I know what success looks like for Loise? Both in church and outside of church. It's a, it's a very real question. Right? What brought them here? A key question to ask. Why, what brought them here and what's keeping them here? You know, if you're leading a team, you find some people say, oh, the reason I'm in this team, uh, teacher Sonera, yeah, you know, it's, it's just you. Um, I want to learn from you. I want to glean from you, you know. I just want to suck you dry with all your knowledge, you know. And then for her, she's like, yo, is that why they're around? And then she realizes, sure, I must up my game in mentoring this person. I thought they were here because they're just passionate about kids. But they're like, no, teacher Sonera, it's you. Because just everything you are, just, I just, I just, oh, teacher, wait. That's what we see happening in church, eh? What brought them here? What will make them leave? <laughs> Exit interviews. <laughs> the problem with church as a pastor, let me just give you guys, those of you who want to become pastors, how many of you want to become a pastor? <laughs> All right. Because the problem with church, when you do exit interviews, when people leave a church, let me just give you a tip. Most of the time, they don't tell you the truth. That's the honest truth. You know? Hey, pastor, you know, yeah, we just felt, you know, yeah, because pastor, you know, the Lord is just doing a special thing on us. And, okay, was he not doing a special thing before? Yeah, no, pastor, you know, yeah, because now that, you know, as the kids are growing, you know, we want them to be involved in some youth ministries, there, and it's the kids. Hey, because our kids, you know, they really want to be in that other church, but hey, what do we do? The kids. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, it's not, it's not the truth. 
and I've seen it happen from experience, guys. You speak to someone, the, the wife, she tells you one story. The husband tells you one story, and you're like, so what's the reason? Okay, not all the time, but a lot of times. Anyway, what will make them leave? So ask that question before the leaving. Because post the leaving, when the decision is made, often the truth doesn't come. <laughs> just, just, just a tip. Who influences them? You know, we can be in a church like this. And you think as a pastor, for example, you're the main person teaching the people and so on. Then you realize after a while that the person has got their favorite disciple and they feed off that particular person. Nothing wrong with doing that, but you start finding that how you're trying to build and the direction you're going, the person ends up with a contrary spirit. They're moving in a different direction. Understand? So each time you say, let's walk two miles, they say, why not five? Each time you say, let's turn right, they say, why don't we turn left? And you're like, where's this coming from? And it starts being a pattern. So ask yourself, who influences them? Is it good influence or is it bad influence? Okay? Simple as that. Without being controlling, obviously. Who are their heroes? What do they expect from me? What do they expect from me? That's a very important question. Because if you ask them, what do you guys expect from me? It's an opportunity for you to manage those expectations. You know, some people, like if you're leading a team, even in the workplace there, some people say, yeah, can we have lunch with each other every day? Yeah, so we can just talk during lunchtime. And you're thinking, but I've got 20 other people who I'm leading. Uh, let me manage this expectation. I don't think I can do that. Maybe once a month we can do lunch. Oh, okay. Right? When you find out what the expectations are of you, it actually helps you, doesn't it? It helps you to then realize, I don't have to be doing everything. Sometimes when you don't know what the expectation is, you're trying to be this perfect pastor, perfect cell group leader. And people are like, no, we don't need this and this and this for you. This is what we really want. Okay? And it's like, oh, okay. I was doing all sorts of things out of guilt. You know, in church, we feel guilty about all sorts of things, don't we? And we start doing things we don't need to do. Okay? <clears throat> what do they need from me? That should be from me that only I can give. What do they need from me that only I can give? What do they need that only I can give? The rest you can delegate. So the principle here is leaders understand the norms of their followers. Number four, growing people. One of the marks of a servant leader is this. The people under me, the people following my leadership, have they grown as people? Have they grown as people? You see, you can get people to do stuff for you, but have they grown as people. It's one thing to use people to help you to accomplish your dream as a leader. It's another thing to serve people to help them accomplish their dreams. Two different things. Two different things, not so? Are your people growing as people under you? Now, the people who are following your leadership, they function best 
not when they're under-challenged, not when they're over-challenged. They function best when they're appropriately challenged and then slightly stretched. What happens when people are under-challenged? They're not motivated, are they? They feel like, ah, this is easy. It's not challenging my intellect. I can do this with my eyes closed, right? What happens when people are over-challenged? Often they say, ah, there's no point trying, guys. No one wants to fail. So it's like, ah, uh-uh, I'm not being set up to win. Come on, you know what it's like. Those of you in sales, hey, Iron, what happens? People are like, these sales targets are unrealistic, so I'm not going to even try, right? People under you will perform at their best when you challenge them, but you challenge them appropriately. But you have to know them to do that. And then you slightly stretch them. You, slit, you stretch them slightly. And that's when they function at their best. There's a guy called Roy T. Bennett, and he once said, you never change your life until you step out of your comfort zone. Change begins at the end of your comfort zone. Change begins at the end of your comfort zone. So please make sure that the people under your leadership are not too comfortable. Challenge them. Stretch them. If you're leading a band, stretch the guys. Say, hey, you know, work on, let's work on our vocals here. Let's go for voice lessons. Let's stretch ourselves. Let's go to the next level. Otherwise, if standards are low, what happens is we just go down to that lowest common denominator. And then we become average. And we never get to realize our potential. Amen? Okay. Very important. I should be going to Spongile and saying, Spongile, so when was the last poem that you wrote? Can you churn out some more? We want to see more. I should be going and giving her topics. Saying, can you do something on the current state of the nation? Amen? That's, that's leaders who are stretching people. Okay. So how do we do that? You facilitate the development of your people. Facilitate the development of your people. You don't have to be the one doing the training. But you link them up with people who can give them input. Amen? Always give your people resources. Okay? Tomorrow, Sunera is doing children's ministry training. Okay? She'll be imparting something to the people. I know it's going to be very powerful. All right? But there'll be times when she might not be the one doing the training. She might be sending YouTubes to people and say, listen to this, listen to that. Have you noticed that we always have a warm feeling towards those who give us resources? Where we feel like this person is genuinely interested in my success. Think about it. Think of trainings that you've been on, training sessions you've been on, not necessarily in the church setting. Let's not even talk about the church setting because you think Paul is biased. At work. And your boss was the one who recommended you for that particular course. How did you feel toward them? You felt like, oh, wow, they're investing in my education. Guys, as leaders, we need to develop our people. One of the things I want to do more and more is send people to go on conferences. You know, they're powerful children's ministry conferences, powerful church leadership conferences. For us to put together in the budget, send people to take them to the next level. Amen. Okay. So, how do you coach your people? Well, I do you watch. There's some of the people who I'm releasing more and more to preach and to speak in front of people. I do you watch. Right? Then we do together. So, we team teach. 
Remember with, remember with Stuart, I've been doing, he was watching, right? Over the last number of years, right? And then what happened? We did together. We did a team teach. Remember there was a time and then he came in and did his bit and people were excited, cool, 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 right? Then you do, I watch and I give you feedback. So he did it. I was there watching. I made sure he was preaching on a day where I'm there and I gave him feedback. Does that make sense? Okay. Then afterwards, you do and you give me feedback. So you, he did the men's meeting uh, recently. I couldn't be there. I wasn't there, but he did it, and then he updated me afterwards. Does that make sense? So that's a classic process of coaching people. You see, you can't coach someone who you're not observing. My, my, I've got a brother-in-law, Martin Dutoy. He's one of the best golf coaches on the continent. And one of the first things he'll ask you if you say, I want to work on my swing. One of the first things he asks you with the technology they now have is send me a video clip of your swing and then he does all sorts of things and he shows you where you're wrong with your swing and so on and that's the starting point the starting point with coaching okay you know a basic need that we all have is the need for progress everyone wants to grow everyone wants to learn it's a basic need every human being has make sure that the people who are under your leadership feel like they're making progress we all want to make progress, don't we? That's why when you're in traffic, what happens? You would if you're on a, sta a standstill in traffic, you'd rather take a longer route as long as you're moving, right? Than just be still. <laughs> all right. So people want to progress. Number five, adapting leadership styles. Adapting leadership styles. You know, there's a way in which we think as human beings. Some people are so strong on logical analysis, but they have to embrace what we call agile thinking. You see, you can be strong on logical analysis, but you have to be able to shift gears and go into gut feel judgment, where you use your gut to make certain decisions. But then you have to also shift gears to systems thinking, where you're saying, can I see the broader ramifications of things? Then you have to move from that to possibility thinking, where you're just dreaming and you're just brainstorming. Now, some people struggle with that. Have you noticed when you're sometimes dreaming and brainstorming, some people are there just saying, that won't work, that won't work, that won't work. We, we don't have enough money. You're like, no, but we're just in the dreaming phase, guys. <laughs> right? So it's important to be able to move in and out of those things. There's scenario planning. There's evidence-based thinking. It's different ways of thinking. Now, your logical analysis people, they're stuck in that style. So you say to them, so what have you decided to do? Well, it depends. Okay, what have you decided to do? Well, there are three options. Okay, which one are you going to choose? Well, it depends. Okay, but which one are you going to choose? We need to bring consultants in. No, which one are you going to choose? That's where they have to shift from logical analysis to gut feel and say, you know what, all three are fine. I'm, I'm, let me just go with this one. Otherwise, you end up stuck. You end up stuck in indecisiveness. And leaders are people who make decisions. Amen. Okay. Now, what's interesting is you have different leadership scenarios that require different leadership styles. Often, we tend to lead people in the way we were led. So we're very stuck. So if you're quite autocratic in your style, then that's what you're like all the time. With your kids, you're like that. With your wife, you're like that. With your pastors, you're like that. It's autocratic. You just tell, tell, tell everyone what to do, right? The thing to understand is, when do I need to tell? 
If we've got a fire in this place and I'm the only person with the information about how to escape and what the escape route is, does it make sense me saying, okay guys, let's vote. Um, which way should we leave the room? What do you guys think? Let's get a flip chart. Is there a flip chart? Can someone grab a flip chart for me? Let's, and it's not a time for that. It's a time to tell. And there are times in ministry where you need to tell. You know, if you're in a situation, let's say in a band situation, and you're actually in the middle of praise and worship, and you're the one leading the song, is there time to sort of say, so guys, what do you think? Should we, should we redo it? Should we do it a second time? No, you just say whatever signal you use, right? <laughs> There's a time to tell. But maybe when you're in the rehearsal stage, that's when you're like, well, what do you guys think? Now, a lot of people are inflexible in terms of what we call situational leadership. They don't adapt their style in different situations. They're just like, poof, poof, poof. They're CEO at work, and they think they're CEO of the church also. You know those people? Some of those people we've had to sort of like put down to size and say, when you're here, the moment you walk through that door, you take your seat. If an usher says, sit down, sit over here, you listen to that person. You're not CEO of the whole world. Yeah, there's some people who have to learn that, right? So sometimes you're telling, sometimes you're selling, sometimes you're suggesting, sometimes you're consulting, sometimes you're joining, sometimes you're delegating. Other times you abdicate, <laughs> okay? And that's to do with boundaries. There's a place for abdication where you're like, you know what? I think these guys should run with this. We're not on the same page anymore, all right? But the point is there are different levels of freedom that you give your subordinates, the people following you. And there are times when you use a lot of authority. And it's important to know when. And you know what the nice thing I love about Jesus? He demonstrated that. So many people get caught up with, a leader must do this. And let's just look at Jesus. Jesus demonstrated being quite participative in his style. And other times he was like, guys, this is now what's happening. Just go and study the Gospels and you'll see. So my question to you is, what is your default leadership style on this continuum? Okay? From whom did you learn this? Who taught you that? Because often we lead people the way we were led. Or sometimes we do, you know with compensation parenting, where you go the opposite extreme of how your parents raised you. I remember meeting someone once and they said, yeah, no, with our kids, Paul, because I said, how do you discipline your kids? No, with our kids, Paul, we don't discipline. It's, um, uh, we just let them flow. They, we, we don't have boundaries. They discover their own boundaries, Paul. <laughs> And then I said to this person, okay, were your parents really strict with you? And they're like, yes, they were really strict. And so I want to make sure I'm not like how my parents were. So then they go the, other, the opposite direction. Does it make sense? People are like that when it comes to leadership. If you've been involved in churches that were spiritually abusive, where there's a lot of control, domination, manipulation, what happens? When you're now leading your own church or you're now leading in a certain environment or you move churches and you're leading a small group there, you try and do the opposite. And everything's like, so what do you think, guys? Okay, guys, what do you think? So what, what do you think I should preach on for the next six months, guys? What's your take? Let's do a vote, okay? You go the other extreme. Is that what God is telling you? <laughs> okay. Now, what are the pros and cons of your dominant style? What are the pros and cons of your dominant style? What is the impact of your style on your team? 
Just think about that. Whatever team you're leading, what is the impact of that style? I know someone, for example, I was doing a workshop today and they said, hey guys, I used to be super, super red where red was my only thing. And you know what? I started noticing things where when I would walk, people would run, like in the corridors, they would literally scramble like back into their offices, running away from this person. Now she's a red, blue, and yellow above the midpoint, okay? But, and the green is still way down. But the point is, um, for those of you unfamiliar with insights, it's just to do with different personality types or behavioral profiles. So red is very direct, like telling its style, right? But this person had to adapt. So, you have different leadership styles in different contexts. Number one, you've got the pace-setting leader. The pace-setting leader is do as I do now. <laughs> so, you have some leaders who are pace-setting leaders. There's some people I know in, the, in their workspace. It's do as I do now. This is the kind of person where they're very smart, intelligent, but also hardworking, strong work ethic. And they literally will just be on the go. I know one particular client of mine who said, hey, but Paul, I don't know how to keep up with so-and-so. She's a wonderful mentor, but she's just, she, she doesn't take a break. She just churns out things. And you literally just have to keep up with the individual. No time to coach people and so on. Just keep up with me. Keep moving. Right? This is the pace-setting leader. Do as I do now. But there's a place for it, isn't there? Sometimes when you all have to get into the trenches, when there's a tight deadline, you need to be pace-setting in your style, in your approach. Number two, there's the authoritative leader. This is come with me. This is the vision, guys. Don't need your contribution. This is the vision. This is where we're going. Come with me, guys. Let's go. <laughs> are you in or are you out? <laughs> Shape up or ship out. But there's, a, there's an interesting Chinese proverb. If you think you're leading people and no one is following you, you're merely taking a walk. Right? F.D. Roosevelt, former president of the United States, he once said, one of the saddest experiences leaders can face is to go through life thinking they're leading people. Then one day they turn around and it's, ain't nobody. Okay? It's like, no one is following me, guys. What's happening? <laughs> Right? So think about it, especially those of you who've got that strong authoritative style. There's a place for it. There's a place for it in certain contexts. But when it's your default for everything, yeah, but they must respect me and follow me. You might end up just going, but you'll be by yourself. Okay? Then number three, the affiliative leader. And their motto is people come first. People come first. In times of change, when you need to get buy-in from people, when you know that they're going to be carrying a lot of the weight and they need to know why they're doing what they're doing, you want to be able to talk to them. You want to be able to say, hey guys, what do you think? What's your contribution here? Okay. Number four, the coaching leader. The mindset of the coaching leader is, hey guys, try this. Oh, isn't it working? Okay, try that. And often they're quite hands-on. But when done badly, the coaching leader can look like a micromanager. Can you see that for each of these, there's the gift they br it brings, but there's also the downside when done badly. So for each of these styles, ask yourself, the affiliative leader, when done badly, what does it look like? Looks like the person has got no backbone. Looks like they're a people pleaser when done badly. Right? Number five, the coercive leader. Do what I tell you. So they're not doing anything. They're just like, guys, just do what I tell you. 
and they're being coercive in that way. And then number six, the democratic leader. The essence of their space is, hey guys, what do you think? Now there's a place for this, hey? Especially when you've got a number of people who are specialists in their field, experts in their field, but they're under you. If there's a guy who comes and he's an expert in terms of building and we get a stand and we want to build a building, there's no point in me saying, I am the leader, come with me, this is what it's going to look like, this is how much we must do. No, if I'm dealing with planners in construction and people who are into building and so on, I'll need to say, so guys, what do you think? Was I'm respecting their expertise. Does that make sense? Okay. Number six, are you guys still here? Number six, taking ownership. If we want to move from being good leaders to being great leaders, we must take ownership. And for all of these, keep asking yourself, what do I need to work on? What's my area of development in terms of these things? Taking ownership. Stop making excuses. When you blame someone or something else, you deny yourself the ability to change. And as, a le as leaders, guys, we need to demonstrate taking accountability. Even as parents, we need to be able to model to our children, being able to say, oh, mom was wrong, if you're a mom. Oh, dad was wrong, sorry guys, please forgive me. We have to be able to do that, eh, as leaders. So that's my question to you, are you taking ownership? If you take ownership, the people on your team will do the same. If you take ownership, the people on your team will do the same. So how do you create a sense of ownership in your team? Number one, plan. What results will you deliver in the next three months and how will you know that they are done? Just that planning. Hey guys, how will you know that they're done? Ask them that question. Okay, number two, get their input on matters that affect them. If you want to create a sense of ownership in any team you're leading, get their input on matters that affect them. Number three, create a culture of self-assessment. Get people to reflect on their behavior and to assess themselves. Okay, great teams do that. Have you noticed that with great teams, they don't wait for input from the coach at halftime? Do they? No. If someone is not passing, they tell each other on the field. The best teams are the ones where it's not just the person leading the team, giving people input. Try and move away from that, guys. Make sure you're giving each other input within the team. Why? There's mutual accountability in that environment. Okay? Number four, establish mutual accountability beyond you. And that's the point there. Number five, co-create rules of engagement. So sit down with the team and say, guys, how are we going to function? How are we going to deal with tardiness? How are we going to deal with dress code? What are we going to do? Right? Co-create it. People will support that which they create. That's the principle. Have you noticed that? People will support that which they create. If they're part of the creation of something, they tend to support it. Have you noticed that? But if, got, if they've got nothing to do with its creation, they're like, eh. It's your thing, okay? Number six, develop meaningful work for them. Number seven, create a climate of significance. Create a sense of significance. What is significance? I matter. Create a sense of belonging. Hey, I'm accepted unconditionally here. 
create a culture of self-respect. When you've got belonging, significance, and self-respect, people will take ownership, won't they? Okay? And then number eight, have fun. Have fun with the people on your team. Whenever I ask people, think about a time when you were part of a team that was really, really great. What was the common denominator? 100% of the time, people, one of the main things people will say is, we had fun. Then I say to them, what does fun look like? 100% of the time, they say, we laughed a lot. We laughed. If you're in a team right now and there's no more laughter, there's a problem already there. There's a problem already there. Laughing is good for us, hey? You know that laughter boosts your immune system. For me, what was so great was just as we were milling around and having eats, and thanks so much, Q, for organizing the food. Let's clap for her. It was nice, wasn't it? Okay. And thanks, Tendai, for marrying Q. We know it would not be possible also without you. Let's clap for Tendai also. <laughs> okay. But it was so nice just hearing the laughter that was taking place. That's healthy, right? Number seven. If you want to move from good to great in leadership, you do it by taking action. One of the key ways of taking action is make decisions. You know that leaders have a bias toward action. Leaders are action-orientated, guys. Let's move away from the type of culture where we just park off and we theorize. We called Go Church for a reason. Let's be action-orientated. Amen? Ask yourself, what ideas did I have for my department last year that I've not yet implemented? Let's be doers, right? Now, what is interesting is, in terms of taking actions, a good tool to use in, is in meetings, you can distinguish between decision-making items, discussion items, and information sharing. Very powerful tool. I call it DDI. Decision-making items, discussion items, and information sharing. A lot of times the mistake we make in our meetings is we just discuss. Have you noticed? Uh, we were just discussing, we were discussing. Two weeks down the line, people say, okay, so how far? And they say, no, we decided. No, but we were just discussing. Then there's confusion between a decision and a discussion. DDI, decision making, discussion items, information sharing. Prioritize the decision making. And during your meeting, sit down. You can use this in the workplace also. But you, you say by the end of the meeting, so guys, what did we decide? What did we decide? What have we resolved to do? And who's accountable? And you make sure that at the next meeting, you bring those people to account. Because if you don't, have you ever been to those meetings where everyone knows no one has done anything? And we're kind of all quiet about it. And it's a disease that creeps into the church. Because we've got all these ideas. We're ideas people, creative people. Right? And that's why for us, one of the good things about Michael is that he's naturally a planner. So often we would come up with all these wonderful ideas and so on. Then after a while you're like, eh, I think let's cancel this one, guys. Oh. And we're like, what were we thinking? At the start of the year or at the end of the previous year, you're full of so much energy. You know, you're still in that holiday mode. And then now life happens. Yeah? What have we decided? What action are we going to take? Let's do it. It's not like certain great churches have got more ideas than we do. The difference is translating ideas into action. Stop procrastinating. 
I know that some people have this as a problem in life in general, that they tend to procrastinate. I want to explain to you quickly why people procrastinate. Why people procrastinate. Often we procrastinate because of inner vows. You know that sometimes you can make an inner vow where you say, I will never do such and such. And now you are bound by your vow. Because when you want to try and do such and such, you never get around to doing it. Have you noticed that? Right? It's a big thing. Sometimes it's also resentment. If you've got resentment towards your leaders, it could be towards your pastor. If you allow bitterness to kick in or resentment, do you know what you'll do? Whenever they ask you to do something, at a subconscious level, you just find yourself, I'll do it in my own time. But you find that at the root of it, there's actually some resentment. There's something you haven't forgiven them for. So you're like, ah, these guys keep asking me to do this. Eh, yeah, I'll see. But the root is resentment. And I'm finding this in workplaces, in a lot of organizations, where I'm starting to address what I call workplace wounds. Because people think it's just in family and church where we do the forgiveness thing. But business is tough and we never do that. And I'm saying, guys, they're workplace wounds. I'm challenging people, even people who are not Christians. And I'm saying, have you forgiven your boss? And guys, even in this church setting, if you've got something against me, please just forgive me. I'm trying. I wasn't trying to be funny. <laughs> I'm trying. Just, just look like, ah, but the guy's trying, you know? Amen? If you were something against your cell group leader, your usher, head usher, your hospitality person, your children's ministry, forgive. And let's create a culture of that because it will cause people to procrastinate. You know, delayed obedience is disobedience, eh? So when you're asked to do something by a leader, even in church and so on, delayed obedience is disobedience. So ask yourself, am I expecting things from my children, but am I doing those very things for the people who are over me in church? Maybe sometimes we're reaping what we're sowing. Okay? Resentment. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes we procrastinate because we're afraid. Like, hey, I don't know. Hey, that business thing, hey, I'm afraid. Sometimes we're in disagreement. You actually have a completely different perspective on the matter, but you're not coming out with it. So you'll procrastinate. And watch out for this in the people who you lead, hey? Because sometimes they will delay and you keep asking them over and over again, but it's actually because they disagree. But they're afraid to actually disagree with you, right? Sometimes it's perfectionism. You're waiting for the perfect time. Perfect time won't happen. Those of you who are perfectionists, it's important to deal with that, hey? Just get started. You can always refine it later. Sometimes it's fear of failure. But we learn from our mistakes, don't we? Sometimes what people call fear of failure is really the fear of being mocked or the fear of being embarrassed. I know a particular gentleman, he's in his late 60s now, and he shared with us, and he said, you know what? Um, as he was growing up, he basically had an experience with his father, and his father mocked him about something. I think it was in, related to sport or baseball or something. And his father mocked him. And he says, I made an inner vow. And he says, Paul, the inner vow I made was I'll never place myself in a position where I can be mocked or ridiculed. So as a Christian, he took pride in the fact that, you know what, I'm, I don't like the limelight. I'm the support guy. I'll be in the background. Right? But he was really afraid of being mocked or ridiculed. 
And for a lot of people, that's what it is. That's why they're afraid of getting up and speaking in front of people. It's, I'm afraid of being mocked or ridiculed. And the person dealt with it. Now, I mean, he's a great speaker. He's written a book on entrepreneurship. He's doing amazing things. But he had believed a lie that I'll always be in the background. But the root was an inner vow he made. I will never put myself in a position to be mocked or ridiculed. So don't be quick to say, it's a fear of failure. Often your fear is a fear of embarrassment. Sometimes what people call a fear of failure is the fear of being blamed. They don't mind failing, but what they're afraid of is someone coming and saying, it was your fault, Shadi. It was your fault. You are to blame, Shadi. <laughs> ah, people will blame me, they'll blame me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sometimes we procrastinate because of alternative low priority activities. Have you noticed sometimes people say, yeah, no, but today I'm just going to be focusing on my filing, guys. I'm just doing my filing. Ah, uh, yes, filing is good, but what is it stopping you from doing? You know, I just want to organize my, I just want to organize my inbox. You know, I'm just coming up with this, yeah, I've just figured What are you really avoiding? I'm tidying up my kitchen today. I'm just reorganizing, you know, I'm just, you know, the mugs need to go up here and, you know, like the glasses need to go down here. I'm just, just want to just, you know, just sort out my kitchen, you know. What else are you really avoiding? Okay. Sometimes we procrastinate because of fatigue. Sometimes because we're avoiding a difficult conversation, we procrastinate. I want to encourage you, be daring. If you want to be a person who's action-orientated, be daring. Dare to dream again. Dare to step into uncharted territories. Dare to love again. For some of you who've been hurt and your challenge isn't to love, it's to love again. Number eight, leading change. If we want to go from good to great in leadership, we must be able to lead change. Do you know that we can anticipate why people will resist, excuse me, will resist change? They resist change when the following categories of questions are left unanswered. The question of motive. People will resist you when you're trying to bring about change because they're questioning, but what's your motive? So your job to move them through change is to basically show that your motives are pure. Because often people have a question of motive. Sometimes people resist change because of lack of information. They actually aren't aware. And that's why it's important to anticipate that by giving them the information that they need. If you're experiencing any blockages in your teams right now, these are things to address. Sometimes people resist change because of collaboration issues. They, they've got a question mark and they're like, but who's going to support me in this? So I could say, um, in any type of situation, I could say something like, uh, who can I use as an example? Loazi, can you lead a, a small group? Can you start to lead a small group? But he might resist and he might never get back to me. But I tell you the reason will be one of these things, right? He might be like, motive. Why does Pastor Paul want me to lead a group? Maybe he doesn't trust me. He might be like, but I haven't got the actual information. Like, what will I lead on? Have I got the material? Can you give me more facts? Is it a long group? Is it standard? Is it night? Is it day? Collaboration, whose support am I going to get? Implementation, hey, but I've got a different way of doing small groups. I'm not too sure if I agree with how you guys do them. Okay? Why are you nodding, Loazi? Personal impact, how's it going to affect me personally? 
These are questions people are asking. How will it affect me personally? Right? Responsibility. Where does the buck stop? I've seen people resist. I remember spe speaking to a couple recently, asking them, do they want to plant a church? What's their future plan and that kind of thing. And I remember the wife saying, you know what the thing is? It's fine serving in a church, but when pastoring, you're responsible. It's like the buck stops with you. It wasn't Michael and Fadzai. They're already doing it. it was, there's, there's, there's another couple I was asking. But sometimes there's a question of responsibility. Who's responsible to do something? And then there's a question of accountability. Who's accountable? And then self-esteem issues. Have you noticed that sometimes, let's say you bring about technological change, and you say to guys, we're changing the system. You then have this animosity, and people are like, guns blazing like no why do you guys keep changing the system because they're too afraid to actually say you know what I'm not confident enough I don't know whether I'll be able to use this new system have you noticed that their issues really their self-esteem and you as a leader your job is to help boost them to say you can do this it's not rocket science but unfortunately they attack you very often when there's that type of change okay People will resist change even when the change is good. So I want to encourage you, if you want to bring about change, it's important to understand why lasting change often doesn't take place. There's a guy called John Cotter from Harvard, and some years ago he came up with some reasons why lasting change doesn't happen. And guys, we can apply this to our churches, to our departments. Number one, Lack of a sense of urgency for change. If you want to bring about a change in your department, in your areas, create a sense of urgency. It's actually one of the things leaders are supposed to do. B, lack of a guiding coalition responsible for the change. Any change you want to bring about, find out, well, who's going to lead the change? Who's going to run with it? Otherwise, we'll just talk about it and it fades away. C, lack of a vision to guide the process. Is there a vision for the change? D, lack of communication of the vision. E, lack of removal of obstacles to change. Whatever you want to change right now, wherever you are as a leader, do you know what the obstacles are? And are you removing those obstacles? F, lack of short-term wins. You know, sometimes we do great. You start up something, you start up a department, and you're waiting until everything is perfect one day in three years' time. Instead of right now celebrating the wins, saying, yay, we've done well. Guys, last month was great. Let's have a culture of doing that in our teams. G, or F, lack of short-term wins, right? G, declaring victory too soon. Sometimes just because we've preached about it doesn't mean it's happened. And H, lack of reinforcement of the change. Are you reinforcing the change that you want to see? And then the final point, number nine, enrolling others. If we want to be great leaders, if we want to move from good to great, we need to be able to enroll other people in this thing we're calling leadership. Who are you attracting? Who are you roping into what you are doing? You know, the latest leadership research, some of the latest re leadership research is actually showing that the greatest leaders today are able to lead beyond the old boys club. They can lead beyond the old boys club. You all know what I mean by the old boys club. People who are like you. People who have the same background as you. 
And guys, where we are going as with churches, we want them to be diverse. Ask yourself, can I lead people who are different to me? Can I lead people who are not like me? What are the different categories? Multi-generational leadership. If I'm young, can I lead old people? If I'm old, can I lead young people? Just think about that. One of the things we're teaching in organizations nowadays, we're helping people because they're saying, Paul, how do we lead old people? It's happening, all these organizations, I can't mention the names, but these people are struggling. How do I lead people who are from a different generation? And the old guys are saying, hey, these youngsters nowadays, they're just different. Eh? Work ethic is different. This is different. Right? How do I lead them? With where we are going, we need to be able to do so. The second dynamic is leadership across gender. If you're a guy, are you good with women? I'm, I'm talking here about... <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking here about leadership. <laughs> Ladies, are you good with guys? I'm talking about leadership. Right? So you have some guys who literally, some of the jokes they crack in front of women in particular, you're like, there's just no sensitivity around this, like no filters. Multidisciplinary leadership. Are you able to lead people who are from a different educational background? If you're an accountant, are you good with marketing people? If you're into human resources, are you good with engineers? I know some people who literally can only deal with people who are at the same level of intellect as them, eh? You know that mindset like, yeah, because, you know, I wish, yeah, you know, because at least with the other CAs, they understand this, you know, but yeah, with the other CAs, at least they get me, you know. No, but if you're a great leader, you must be able to lead people who aren't from the same professional background as you. The problem we have in this nation is we define ourselves too much by our profession and not by our purpose. Because our education system is so focused. If you're an accountant, that's what you study. It's not like in Australia where you can do double degrees. You know, in Australia, you can do like a Bachelor of Commerce, a BCom Pharmacy. And that's how the real world works, isn't it? A lot of the people I deal with in the pharmaceutical industry are in situations where you have people who studied, a, who did a BSc, but then did an MBA, and it's helping them to lead a business unit. Okay? But here, very focused, and then we're so proud of that degree or that diploma or whatever you studied, and we define ourselves by it. You know that some of the leading entrepreneurs in this country are accountants, but they didn't define themselves as, oh, I'm a CA, I'm a CA. Oh, do you know that I'm a CA? Oh, I'm a CA. No offense to the CAs, by the way, sorry. Right. They said, I'm a business person. I happen to have an, a background in accounting. Can you see the difference in mindset? So important. Don't define yourself by your profession. Define yourself more by your purpose. And then finally, cross-cultural leadership. If you've got chocolate colored skin, are you good at leading peach people? If I'm using my children's language, if you are peach colored, are you good at leading yellowish brownish people? <laughs> okay, you know what I'm talking about. Are you good at leading cross culturally? Do you understand the nuances of the different cultures?
Don't define yourself, guys, by your profession, but rather by your purpose and hire people according to your weakness. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I have finished my lesson.